Welcome to episode 437 with my guest, Dr. Andrea Brandt. We're going to talk about aging and facing mortality and how to find happiness and contentment as uh, as our bodies deteriorate. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the uh, social media handles you can follow uh, me slash the show at. Um, we had the the Patreon raffle uh, two weeks ago. I made a cutting board, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not a cutting board. I was giving that was the previous raffle. I was giving away uh, two books by our guest Jordan Reed, and afterwards. Patreon contacted me and said, I'm not allowed to raffle off things that a single person gets on Patreon. I either have to give it to a whole tier of donors uh, or I can't give it to any single person. So I'm going to have to figure out how to do book giveaways and uh, cutting board giveaways and stuff like that. But and I got kind of a nasty email from somebody that was criticizing me for um, releasing back catalog episodes just to Patreon donors at the $3 a month level. Um, and it, it, it bothered me because whenever anybody criticizes me, my immediate thought is they're right, I'm terrible, I don't deserve anything good in my life. And after talking about it with a couple of people, you know, there's two and a half years of free episodes available. And a lot of times when people who aren't donors email me and say, hey, I'm looking for an episode about such and such. Uh, and if there aren't any episodes on their free feed, a lot of times I'll send that person the, the link uh, for, for free because I do want to help people. And I don't know, it just, it bothered me. It bothered me. I've mentioned before that on certain episodes, there are certain, uh, I don't know, themes that kind of reveal themselves as I go through the surveys. And it's interesting this week, church and psych wards seems to be the the theme. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, there's a lot of overlap between church and psych wards. Uh, I don't know how to put it quite into words, but I think you understand what I'm saying. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Your Choir Sucks. And she writes, My grandmother's funeral was last week. I loved her so much. She passed away at an old age, so it wasn't tragic, just bittersweet. Right before I headed home for the service, my mom called me and said, The priest finally got back to me. I'm so sorry, but there's only one funeral date they can offer us at the church. Your birthday. Ah, thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself I vape in airplane bathrooms. And uh, about her self-harm, she writes, I already have too many scars. What's one more? It's easy to cover up. No one needs to know, but I know. I have to look at my scars every day, every single day. About her PTSD, I can't go to churches anymore. It's stupid. 
But even the idea of being in a church makes my skin burn with shame. It's not religion, just churches. I flash back to five years ago, and all I can think about is, please stop. That's heavy. Thank you for that. Uh, Tony fills out a struggle in a sentence survey, and uh, she's a recovering Mormon who struggles with depression, bulimia, compulsive eating, love addiction. Uh, and snapshot from her life, she writes, being torn between what I thought of as the, quote, good girl and the bad girl, unquote, splurges of being simply me, myself, and I, the shame of being a sexual girl and feeling dirty and bad because of it. You know, a lot of, of people have uh, shared about their experiences with religions, and I hear a lot about different religions, but I don't really know that much. I was raised Catholic, but so I decided to go to the one place where you can get the uh, the truth about different religions. I went to Yelp. Tom W. writes about Catholicism. I went for the first time Sunday. I didn't know what to expect. I had heard very mixed reviews, but everyone was polite. And while the people on stage had fun Vegasy costumes, ultimately they failed to deliver. I came feeling good, but after the speech in the middle... I left depressed. The sparkly robe guy said something about me being born bad. What the fuck? Plus it went on forever. The show could have easily been an hour shorter. The music was uninspired and also depressing. They should sell some of that gold and get voice lessons. Two stars. Vicky R. writes about Islam. I kind of liked it. People were very welcoming and seemed pretty humble. The call-to-prayer loudspeaker needs replacing and lacks mid-range. I knew a little bit about it, so I brought my yoga mat, and when we did child's pose, I threw in a little downward dog, which I guess wasn't cool. I also got the feeling yoga pants are frowned upon. I could feel myself relaxing, though, which was pretty sweet. I'd try it again, but five times a day seems excessive, especially for someone with no sense of direction. Three stars. About the Baptist Church, Heather B. writes, Great music, terrible air conditioning. I wasn't familiar with many of the songs, but they were really soulful. The singers clearly listened to a lot of Hozier. The head speaker guy doesn't need to be so loud, but then again, maybe he has to because people kept talking over him. I tried shooting dirty looks and even saying, Do you mind? But it didn't help. I even complained to the usher, but he was busy helping a lady who fainted. Two and a half stars. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Psych Nurse. And um, she writes, some of the nurses really don't give a shit. Some are burnt out. And and she is uh, actually a psych nurse, or at least used to be. Um, and she just wanted to say her piece about working at one. Some of the nurses really don't give a shit. Some are burnt out. You don't pick your hours. If anything, you are forced to do overtime or lose your job. And if you have a heart in your body, this shit is hard to take day after day and burns out and numbs you. I cared so much about my patients. I went above and beyond, which I got yelled at for crossing boundaries. But patients are hungry on psych meds that make them very hungry and there's no food. So I buy pizzas for Fridays or whatever out of my pocket. 
I sat and talked to every patient as much as I could, educating them about meds or their diagnoses and the basics of being hospitalized. I gave a shit. I burned out. I took a few years off doing something else, but as a nurse, you're always dealing with your patient's psyche, so you are always a psych nurse, and I think that's a plus. A few years later, I missed my patients, but ended up working in a male prison psych ward. I lasted a few months, uh, but they really were unhelpable, hopeless, helpless, and didn't even want to get better because they are mostly lifers anyway. Non-med compliant in so many sociopaths, not to mention being masturbated to all day long and almost getting gassed, which means having a cup of piss, shit, and cum thrown at your face. I ran too fast, but yes, I left there. I now work in pediatrics, and I never liked kids, but it was my savior job after the prison. I love it. I deal with children that have mental illnesses as their care coordinator, and it's great. But some facilities, if not all, take their nurses for granted, burn them out to no end, and expect nothing more than a robot. That's what they get. When I started to feel that way, I left. Others keep going, becoming resentful towards their patients, and that's not okay. I blame healthcare for understanding overworking and crappily paying their staff. You would get better nurses and staff under better conditions. But as hard as I tried to advocate for my peers and coworkers so that we could do that, the more hated I was. That's being a nurse, especially in psych wards. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, one of our sponsors for today's podcast is the app Calm. Uh, we talk a lot about finding ways to release stress and improve the quality of our lives. And uh, Calm is the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. When we're sleepless, we're more prone to accidents, weight gain, depression. With Calm, you'll you will discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and your body needs, like soundscapes and over a hundred sleep stories. Slow down, Paul. Just slow the fuck down. Go to the app uh, right now, Paul, and chill the fuck out. I had way too much coffee. Sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night, with the help of Calm. Right now, you guys, the listeners, get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash mental. Our uh, sponsor today is also BetterHelp.com, the uh, provider of online therapy. I'm a huge fan of it. I talk about it every week. And I love it. If you've never tried online therapy, there's something really nice about not having to get in your car and go to therapy, but also being able to have a face-to-face conversation. If that's the medium that you choose, you can also do chat, live text, phone, email, whatever you want. You work it out between you and your counselor. So if you want to investigate it, go to, and by investigate it, I mean as a licensed uh, law enforcement officer. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. Uh, and then finally, this is an awful moment 
filled out by a woman who calls herself Jesus fucking Christ. And she writes, my mother, in a miraculous moment of vulnerability that I never expected to see from her, admitted she may be depressed. I said, I think that's likely, as everyone in our family is depressed and has gone through a lot. As soon as I suggested the pro bono therapist, my own therapist referred for my family, my mother cut me off and said she was going to remodel the house so that there would be, quote, no more bad feelings. I almost laughed at the irony in her response until she asked me to stop going to my therapist so I could help her pay for the remodeling. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared. And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Andrea Brandt, uh, and her husband is sitting in uh, as well. Um, Not participating, but sitting in. (laughs) Um, And you have a book out called Mindful Aging. Uh, embracing your life after 50 to find fulfillment, purpose, uh, and joy. And uh, when your publicist reached out uh, to me, I thought, wow, what a great topic. We have not really talked on the mental and emotional and spiritual uh, aspects of uh, accepting mortality, accepting aging, how we look at it. Um, And your book dispels so many of the myths that people have about what getting old uh, means. Uh, where where would be a good place to uh, to start? You are a uh, psychologist. Yes, I am. And you have uh, been a, a clinician for a while. Treated over thirty five years. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> treated uh, a number of people. Uh, your book breaks uh, down into a variety of different ways. Of what what would be the kind of the the best way for us to to proceed. Well, why don't we start with what inspired me to write it? Great. Okay, because as you mentioned a moment ago, I've done uh, a couple of books on mindful anger, and I've worked a lot with individuals and couples on anger. But what inspired me when I finish saying what I had to about anger. What inspired me about this book is I noticed that I was getting older. People around me were getting older. And I thought about aging. And the person that came into my mind was my grandmother. My mother and my... I came from a very matriarchal family. And my mother and my grandmother... um, produced and thrived well into their 90s. My grandmother um, got divorced for the second time at the age of 92 
with the explanation to me, because I said to her, Grandma, are you crazy? What are you doing? And she said, he's a lovely man, sweetheart, but he's just holding me back. Wow. And she had another six years. She died at 98, and and she had another fruitful six years. My mother lost her eyesight when she was 77. She was seven, no, she was 67, and it was in 77, and she went back to work. She had her own business, Ladies Ready to Wear Clothing in Chicago, and she went back to work for another eight years. Completely sightless. Sightless. For the rest of her life. For the rest of her life, but... She had been in it for so long, and she had such repeat business that she could put her hands on you and tell you what size you were. Wow. So now it's not like these ladies didn't have difficult times in their life. They certainly didn't have easy lives, but they didn't think about age. They just produced and kept going and moving and doing. And I thought, wow, so many of the people I see in practice that are, some of them in their late 40s, but certainly in their 50s and up, some of them feel irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Like they don't know what to do. Like when I look at how this society talks about aging, they talk about it as though we're all in decline. You know, we're over the hill instead of as I see it, which is at the top of the mountain. And I don't think there's any, you know, magical time where we have to give up our dreams and um, surrender our possibilities. And it came from that upbringing, that influence. And I'm really grateful to those women, especially my grandmother. She was a character. <laughs> well, it's such an important message because, um, you know, in our culture, so much is, uh, emphasis is placed on money and physical appearance um, when I'll speak personally for myself. The, the the thing that has the two things that have helped me the most that money and you know the physical world could never help me with was uh, finding meaning and purpose in right. my life, right? And fostering human connection, right? Yeah, fostering human connection is one of the most important things, especially as you're getting older. Mm -hmm. You need. We are social beings. We need to be with people. Tell the the story about the guy with uh, the angry neighbor. Uh, I'm not remembering all the details of it. Um, would, you, would you like me to take a crack? Yeah, it's pretty. Please. It's pretty fresh in my mind. Uh, he he was just uh, the, kind of the stereotypical uh, old guy uh, yelling right. at kids to stay off his lawn. Uh, you know, kids would be hanging out in a tree, having a great time, and uh, you know he was just snap at everybody. Nobody liked him. 
Um, he was in his driveway one day washing his sports car, and he was probably in his, I don't know, 70s maybe? Yes. And um, and uh, this this person had a friend come by, and the friend saw this guy's sports car and said, oh, what a beautiful sports car. Um, do you want to take it uh, from here? Yeah, what a beautiful sports car. And he wanted... Um, uh, he wanted to go for a ride in it, didn't he? Uh, he, I don't remember what the what it was that the person said, but yeah. this guy's demeanor completely changed, and he went from being this angry guy yeah, with all some, his walls up because somebody had reached had out to him, acknowledged yes something that was important to him, and and this and the guy with the sports car, the angry guy, that's what I mean. Let, yeah, let it be known, uh, shared that. Um, he, his wife had died tragically 40 years ago and, um, this sports car meant everything, meant everything because it reminded him of her, of her. Yes. And in that moment, that person was able to break through that guy's shell. Right. And in a nutshell, um, what is it? about that moment that, that that we can take from that? I think what we can take from that moment is something that's very important to everyone. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And if we're not, we get angry. We get upset. Or sad and withdrawn. And sad and withdrawn, Yeah. Definitely. So we want to be seen. We want to be heard. That guy saw something that was important to him Mm -hmm. and that touched this man in some way. And so he told him about his wife and... Yeah. That's a beautiful story. Uh, Are you getting choked up? A little. I, I, I mean, I vaguely... I didn't remember it so clearly because it... I wrote it so long ago mm-hmm. and there's so many other stories so and many so stories. many recent stories yes. that I've heard that it's a little jumbled. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I love about your book is there are so many real life examples yeah. of, of uh, the things you talk about in there and to me to really get through to somebody with these concepts it has to be made real Otherwise, I, it, it's just academia. Right. I don't like academia. I mean, those are the books I put down very quickly. Yeah. Tell me a story. That's that's. Yes. And write it in a way that um, I was just referred a woman who went through all the schooling to become a therapist and didn't know if she wanted to be a therapist. And I said, well, what are you reading? And she gave me the name. I I don't want to give the names, but Mm -hmm. she gave me the name of a couple of books, and they were so academic. I thought, you'll you'll never decide to become a therapist if you read those books. These are the books you have to read. They'll make sense. They'll move quickly. You'll be able to relate to them. And maybe you'll want to become a therapist. Those are the books that touch you and and say something to you. Do any stories uh, come to mind uh, that you could share uh, as examples of um, 
the points that you try to get across in your book about how we view aging, how we view mortality. Um, yes. Um, something happened to a dear, close, close friend of mine just recently, as a matter of fact. Um, she was separated from her husband and met a man, and they were, he was in his 80s, she was in her 70s, so it's never too late, mm -hmm. okay, that's lesson number one. Um, and they had this wonderful, meaningful um, six months together. She went back east for a holiday, I think it was a Jewish holiday, and got a phone call that he had been killed in a, a car accident. And she, of course, was devastated. And she called me about it. And we talked about it. And it's not like she uh, hasn't had people die in her life, but no one that had touched her quite like this. And she said something interesting. She said in a uh, subsequent email, she said, "I'm trying to I'm trying to come to terms with the finality of it." And I thought to myself, "I don't think we ever come to terms with the finality of death. It's something that we live with and have to accept." But it's not like we can come to terms and put it in a little box and say, okay, I got that. You know, I'm never going to see him or her again. Well, in your book, you talk about taking that existential dread or fear of our mortality yeah. and, and using it. Talk about that. The things that we fear the most, like mortality. There was a woman in the 80s who wrote a book, uh, Dr. Joyce McDougall. It was called Theaters of the Mind. And she said we spend 98% of our time on earth denying and avoiding mortality. Now, that's a hell of a big number. That seems a little low to me. <laughs> That's What's fun. her secret? Ninety-eight <laughs> percent. I'm, tr I'm trying to get it down to ninety-nine. <laughs> I need a vacation. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, ninety-eight percent. And I thought, wow, you know, I was right along with her until I got sick somewhere in my sixty, early sixties, and I, it was a wake-up call. And it occurred to me that we're all afraid of mortality. We're afraid of a lot of things. You know, fear is with us at all times. But if we don't talk about it, if we don't feel it, if we don't feel our feelings, it just stops us. Mm -hmm. Stops us in our tracks. Doesn't allow us to move forward. And mortality is no different. You know, we have to talk about what it means. We need to, as we get older, do something, involve ourselves in something spiritual. 
I believe in all kinds of things that are not measurable by science. You know, um, my... Most of the good stuff isn't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> my... Uh, colleague friend who I quote in that book when her husband died and she had that dove show up outside her window. I believe in that. I remember when my mother died in the city of Chicago, she was buried and it's a pretty busy city. You know, I'm have, from there. What? I'm from there. Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have wild animals roaming around no. Chicago. But in Unless you count people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but in the um cemetery right over here was the grave and right over there was a wolf. <laughs> wow. Wow. Really? And I kind of went like that to my husband. I said, "Look at that." Wow. So, I mean... Uh, my ex-wife, who is uh, not a quote-unquote spiritual person, you right. know, doesn't right. uh, practice any particular sort of thing, um, and we had a dog that was our little baby boy, and he uh, died about six months ago, and she said the next day there was, um, I think it was a hummingbird or something mm -hmm. that wouldn't leave her alone right. that was just right in front of her right and I, I hear so many stories where people uh talk about that now that's an example of where you know there's something ethereal beyond our understanding it's but, something but we larger feel it than larger us, than us some some type of structure in the universe that reminds us right we don't know it all right and maybe it's not everything that we're afraid of maybe isn't necessarily bad how do we work towards embracing that in our daily lives? Well, I think we need to practice mindfulness. Okay. Because a lot of people hear the word spirituality and they immediately think of church and they shut down. Well, yes, My, of course. Myself included. You know, I would too. I am not for organized religion. I think right. organized religion really screws up a lot of people. Yeah. Okay, I've seen it. Um, but whatever it is for people, I have no judgment on whatever it is they want to choose. So it could be music, it could be nature, could be human connection, volunteer Absolutely. work. Absolutely, be a mentor. Do something, give back, create your little special corner of the world. But I think that... It has to be something that's meaningful to you. I belong to a spiritual group. We call ourselves a spiritual group. We've been together for almost 20 years trying to define the word spirituality. It's such a hard word to define. It really is. Because if you could define it, I suppose it wouldn't be special. <laughs> right. You know, I heard somebody say one time in one of my support groups, if God was small enough for me to understand, it wouldn't be big enough to help me with my problems. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, so for people to kind of get the larger essence 
of mortality and spirituality. They've got to slow down. They've got to practice, learn about mindfulness and practice it. And mindfulness is that um, exercise, if you will, where we drop down, we slow down and we drop down to our internal world. Because I believe most people go through life in a trance. Mm. I don't think... In fact, I found a quote once, and I show it when I go around the country and teach, that 47% of the people in this country have no idea what they're doing by the minute, by the day. They don't pay attention. I think there's room for improvement. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> Frankly. Yeah. Um, and And I prefer to think of people not as good or bad but as um healing wounded awoken or asleep yeah yeah no i don't think they're good or bad but i do think they're in a trance absolutely because they're not paying attention they're trapped in the past or obsessing about the future exactly you know wanting a better childhood they're not going to have a better childhood it just isn't possible. And can you imagine what they would charge? <laughs> yeah, right. Let me tell you. Oh, I hazard, hazard a guess. <laughs> but um, to be mindful means that you are following in a mindful way with your mind and your body, your moment-by-moment moment experience in a very non-judgmental way. And that's the key word, to be non-judgmental. And getting the information from your insides, which can tell us how we believe about something, how we think about something, how we feel about something, what our um, sensations are. Our sensations tell us what's really going on with us. And then, of course, we see what emotion goes with that. And that's all, that's wonderfully important information that we need to have that unless we're being mindful, we don't get it. We don't. It, it, in many ways, it's, it, I kind of view it as you know, a radio dial. Uh, is, you know, if you're off just by a little bit, you're not going to get any information. But if you tune it just right, the the universe has a way of speaking to you and through yes. you. That's hard. To, it's hard to put into words. But the David Lynch has a book about how um, the best ideas come often through getting quiet, getting right. still clearing your mind and not judging what it is that you're thinking. Exactly. You know, one of the biggest challenges in, in learning mindfulness is to stop telling yourself, I'm not doing this good enough. I'm not doing this well. You know, it, what's so wonderful about mindfulness is it gives you room and space to come up with other behaviors and other thoughts and other beliefs where prior to doing mindfulness, most people are locked into habitual behaviors. 
doing. Doing. Yeah. It's what, you know, you get up in the morning, you're a guy, you're going to take a shower, you're going to shave, eat breakfast, do something that looks like that. Women put on makeup, they get dressed, they have breakfast, get the kids ready for school, go to their job, whatever. But it's habitual. Nobody's thinking. You know, so... Um, <laughs> I, I tried something different because I know that about myself that I will get in that routine kind of thing. And um, so I try, when I brush my teeth at night, I try to stand on one foot <laughs> just to become, not just to become mindful, but also it helps me. I have a bad left ankle, so it helps mm -hmm. me balance better. But... It gets me in the moment. Mm -hmm. My therapist had me uh, using my opposite hand yeah. throughout the day, right? which can't help but bring you into, the, <laughs> into, the, into the present moment. Right. I think mindfulness is essential for a good older age, a happier older age. And is it fair to say that at the heart of mindfulness is getting in tune with your senses? Hearing, smelling, um, all of the above, which then gets you out of the rumination. Uh, Truly, the thoughts Definitely. ping ponging around in your in your brain. I had this moment where I was at a coffee a coffee house uh, a year or so ago, and and I thought, man, I'm I'm in one of those doing modes, and I and I just felt like. You know that feeling when it's almost like the 60 minutes clock is going and you're just three <laughs> steps behind the universe? Right. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm not. Maybe it's my perception that I'm behind and I'm not doing enough. And maybe what I need to do is just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so I put my laptop away and I just sat in this chair at this cafe and I just looked around. Right. And I looked at the birds and I looked and there was this beautiful flowering plant right in front of me that I had yeah. I go to this place every day. Right. And I'd never noticed it before. And I took right. I took a picture of it and I looked at it up close and I looked at all the different branches, how this branch was a little different than the other one. And in that moment, all of the stress went away. And it's so yeah, counterintuitive it to do less sometimes when you feel like you you should be doing more. How how is that different though than um, procrastinating? Oh, I don't think that's procrastination. No, but I mean for the for the listener, how how is um, I, I suppose because there's no judgment in procrastination, you're judging yourself for uh, or well, you're judging. You're on your tail about not doing something, but procrastination. Yes, you're on your tail, but you're also not being passive right. when you're doing that. You're being in the moment, right? And th there's and you're no, awakening, and you're awakening, and there's no greater value, right? Because if procrastinating. You can still be unconscious. Oh, gosh, You can yes. still be trapped in the future or the, uh, past. the past. Right. Definitely. So it's about bringing it into the present moment, using your senses. And you need to also 
um, be flexible. You know, a lot of people get locked in and they don't know how to say, oh, I'd like to do that, but, oh, I have to do it at this time or it won't get done or something. It doesn't have to be done at that time. If it's your dream and your passion, you can do it anytime you want. Just decide on what time works best for you. Yeah, in your book you said um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, who was one of the greatest architects ever, right, was the most prolific in his 60s and 70s? No, like he, he was the most prolific between 60 and 90. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I just heard today, I think on um, something on my web, uh, or maybe it was Meet the Press, where just last week at that election on Tuesday mm-hmm. in New Jersey, 93-year-old mayor in some small burg in New Jersey. I thought it was fabulous. At 93, he said, enough is enough. I got to do something. <laughs> yeah, We right. need change. <laughs> yeah. I've waited long enough for somebody else to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think that's what I said. There's no time we have to give up our possibilities or our dreams. If there's something you want to do, look at it. See it for what it is. Don't exaggerate the negative, but see how this can work for you. I think the best things that we encounter in life happen when we put our expectations to the side and really just kind of open our eyes and say, I'm going to improvise with what reality is going to give me right today right and then make it about something you really love something that you have a passion for something i encounter a lot are people who are stuck in jobs that they hate Mm. and they feel frustrated in pursuing the dream that they want and they feel almost like the like the universe doesn't love them you know what i mean what do you what do you say? Do you think they're victims? <laughs> well, I think there is a the universe has picked them out to not love. <laughs> I think that's the the feeling at that point. I had a friend uh, I was talking to on the phone the other day, and it's kind of a running theme in our in our conversations. And one of the things that I I said is, you know, I. I think you need to get out of yourself a little bit because you seem to be caught in a spiral of self-obsession. Right. And oftentimes the path to a beautiful life can be started by taking a a course that has nothing to do with what we want but how we can make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Right. That's I mentioned before. People who volunteer and mentor are not only getting out of themselves, but they're also making themselves feel good. It's like, look what I'm doing. 
this is wonderful when you can bring something to another person or make that person's life a little bit better. You know, to be kind, something inspiring for you and for the other. It does get you out of yourself, but I tell 20-year-olds, if you've got low self-esteem, one of the things you can do about that is go volunteer someplace, help someone out. Perform esteemable acts. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and if you think about it, it it makes total sense because we've all experienced doing the right thing and feeling a sense of calm and peace afterwards. Right. It doesn't cost anything to do the right thing. Not at all. But we're on this treadmill where we think that we have to get to a certain place in our career, get in a certain amount of material goods or find the perfect partner, and then we will be. It's always, and then, when I get out of college, and then, and when I get out of the army, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's always we're putting it off sometime instead of what about right now? No one is in the moment. I was reading an interview with uh, Steve Case, uh, one of the founders of uh, uh, AOL, and uh, this was you know years ago when AOL was the you know the behemoth. Yeah, and he was at uh, that annual conference in Davos where all the muckety mucks from around the world come, and he was talking to a reporter and he said, "Um, "You know, I come here every year." And I experience the same feeling, which is that whatever room I'm in, there's something better going on in another room. (laughs) And I don't know why I come here. And I thought, it never ends unless you decide. Right. That you're just going to be happy in the moment. Yeah. And I don't have to be anyplace else. I'm just happy right here. Sometimes that happens to me where I'll think to myself, well, they look like they're having a good time, and I'm just sitting here. Maybe I should go over and get that conversation. Isn't it great doing that? You know, and I'm just looking and I'm saying... But I'm happy right here. <laughs> well, do you ever get up and go and go yes, inside yourself? Yes, I will. And, yeah. and get in that conversation. Yeah, sure, I will. But I, no longer do I feel like I have to. I see. I see. I don't have to. I don't have to do it because someone else thinks I should. I got you. You know, I, I think I can just be happy and be with myself or be with my thoughts or see what's going on with me. I think, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that we are living longer and healthier. And in my book, I call that the longevity bonus. And it feels to me to be a time that is about you. Not what somebody else thinks you should do, mm-hmm. but what you want to do. And I think that's really important. And not that I was thinking about that when I was thinking that I was looking at that conversation and sitting in my seat and being happy with that. I wasn't necessarily thinking about that then, but I was thinking about how many years. I was thinking about your friend 
um, who is obsessed with um, not feeling good about himself. Right. The world Being frustrated professionally. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I was thinking that, you know, this isn't a time of expectation when you're older or having to do things that other people or you think other people want you to do yeah. or the shoulds. Mm -hmm. This is really a time for you. Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of um, people that haven't aged don't realize the beauty of learning what you can shed. Yes. And and. And shedding it. Shedding it. It's, <laughs> it. It is. I used to think that I had to become something different. Ninety percent of getting to where I wanted personally inside was letting go of who I thought I needed to be to survive, right. be safe, be loved. Right. You know, and it's one of the things when people say, well, what do people have to give up that they don't need anymore? One of the things they have to give up is that indomitable self-talk. Oh, my God. The negative self-talk. Negative self-talk. We make ourselves crazy. The moment we find something we love, in comes that voice <laughs> that says, well, be careful, you never know, it's, it's got this hazard, you need this contingency, come on. Who says? Where is it written? A couple other ones uh, that, that I think are, you need to have everybody love you. Oh, right. That one will kill you. Yes, yes. Uh why do it if you can't do it perfectly? Well, we know, you know, there's no such thing as perfection because you'll only look for flaws to be sure you can fix whatever it is that's wrong. Uh, what are some other um, ideas that we shed? Um, th that we should be good at everything. And if we, and if we aren't good at everything, we're a failure. And we need to keep all agreements. Now, I believe, I don't want to be flip about that, because I do believe agreements are important. But sometimes shit happens, and we can't keep an agreement. And I think that's where flexibility comes in again. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, you mean an agreement you made with somebody or an agreement no. we made with ourselves? No, an agreement we made with someone. Okay. You know? Um because agreements are important in terms of connection and friendship and relationships. They're really important. But sometimes, for whatever reason, we can't live up to it, even though we think we can or thought we could. Um, and so there's got to be some room for that. And I also think that that's a good opportunity to work that muscle of having difficult conversations with people, mm -hmm. which uh, there is no really true growth or intimacy, I believe, if you don't learn how to have difficult conversations with people, to do it diplomatically and lovingly, but not being a doormat, um, 
advocating for yourself, but not being unnecessarily harsh. And it's that gray area that I think so is so challenging for us. And, and so we go to the black or, or white, white thinking. Um, you just said what I say at all my workshops that I give when I go around the country because I'm basically at this point talking about mindful anger Mm -hmm. and passive aggressiveness. And one of the things I say to people in my office as well as to people in other parts of the country is that conflict, argument, disagreement bring people closer together. They make our relationship stronger if we learn how to have them. We get ourselves in trouble if we deny, suppress, or repress. We need to feel our feelings. That's how we become authentic. You can't be authentic if you're afraid to tell somebody that might make something that might make them unhappy with you. That's a bad precedent to yeah. start, you know? One of the things that that helps me uh, start off a, a difficult conversation with somebody is saying something nice at the beginning of it, yeah, reminding always. them that they're important to me and I wouldn't, and, and let them know that I'm struggling to express what it is that I want to express, but because you're important to me, I don't want to just bury this. I want to have a healthy relationship with you. So here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling this as opposed to saying, you know, you always do this and... Oh, yeah. Always and never. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you're saying something very important, which I believe in, and that is... You're wanting to preserve the relationship and take care of it. Yes. That's why you're going into that sketchy, scary area of conflict and disagreement. If you didn't care, you wouldn't be going there. Talk about when two people are disagreeing. Let's say they're people that are living together. Um and one person is really uncomfortable with how the other person is expressing themselves or just that they're having feelings, what what should both parties keep in mind? The person who's having the overwhelming feelings and the person who is made uncomfortable by seeing somebody close to them have uncomfortable feelings. What are some things to keep in mind? Well, keep in mind that the person having the overwhelming feelings, that it's their feelings. And you don't have to fix them because that's not going to be helpful. All you need to do is listen, listen and hear them and acknowledge them and validate them, which doesn't mean you agree with them. You validate their feelings. You validate their feelings. You're not validating their reality, their take on no, perhaps a situation. Even, or even agreeing with them. Right. Yeah, you're not doing anything like that. But validating, nobody gets validated enough, in my opinion, you know? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Look, I just validated you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, okay, so... 
And sometimes the person who's not having the overwhelming feelings is scared by the overwhelming feelings. Oh, my God, they want to fix it. They want to make it go away. They really love the person, care about the person. They don't want them in such pain and heartache. Especially if something from childhood is being triggered because it reminds them. Exactly, exactly. And I understand that, but they need to say that they're afraid at that point. So... Otherwise, they'll jump in and try to fix it, and it'll only piss their partner off um, because the partner doesn't have the presence of mind to know that they're scared. Though if it's a long-term relationship, they might have some sense that when they get into heavy-duty feelings that the partner gets scared. They might, so it depends. But... um, I, I had uh, an epiphany. One time my wife and I were disagreeing about something, my ex-wife and I, and I found myself, I suddenly became aware of my habit in a disagreement of wanting to be the victor and have her be the vanquished. And I thought, that's insane because I... I'm living with this person after this argument is over. Why would I want them to feel humiliated? Right. And it had taken me 15 years mm. of being in a relationship to realize that you can be partners in a disagreement. Yes. And not opponents. Exactly. Yes. But you must have had that experience someplace. <laughs> which which experience? The... Somebody needing to be a victor. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. 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 I, it was, and, and I think in our culture, in America, it's all about being number one and winning. I, yeah. I think that that's a problem that some women, but most men, have been brought up having to believe it. I think yeah. it's it's really a shame. And, and I think when we're in a place of spiritual emptiness, the closest tool for us to feel good about ourselves is to make us think that we're better than somebody. Right, to, right. It, it, it's a really, really crude tool to uh, lift our spirit because it's temporary and it's an impossible spinning plate oh, to, to keep going. sure. For sure. There's an example of how going to a support group can not only help you, but can help other people. There was uh, a guy who was really new to a support group that I was going to, and he said something one time, um, and it's so profound. He was talking about somebody having achieved something that he wanted, and he reflected on it, and he real he saw how useless it was for him to be jealous of that person and he said it occurred to me that your success is not my failure right and i've never forgotten that and there's two things there the thing that he said and the fact that this was a person who had only been going to a support group for three months and people Mm. think oh you know, it never even occurs to them that they can help other people right. in a support group. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. I think that I run a group every week on a Wednesday night, 
And I am amazed at how savvy people's feedback is, because I don't think I'm the only one that has the end all of what to say to somebody. And they give feedback, and it's just so touching and wonderful. And then I can come in at the end and say something that ties it up psychologically. But people help one another all the time if you give them the opportunity or they give themselves the opportunity. I mean, support is support, and people love to give it, even if they don't even know you. And and to anybody out there who's thought of going to a support group but you've never gone um, because you think either it's not for you or it wouldn't help or you wouldn't have anything to offer, um, something that you might not be considering is that the mental and emotional anguish that you've battled with for part of your life or most of your life is a tool and a set of experiences that will make you beneficial to that group Mm -hmm. because other people will be able to identify and feel less alone and you will have an insight. People who haven't suffered often can't have the depth of insight that someone who has suffered has. You know what's fascinating? Many years ago, I used to run what I called um, anger groups because I was doing research on anger for my books Mm -hmm. and uh, dissertation and everything. And there was no um, research on it because the National Organization of Women didn't want men to get off, spousal abusers to get off on any... Technicality. Technicality. So therefore, if there's no research, there's no money, then the NIH doesn't do research on it. Okay, so I did these groups, and they were grueling, long, hard hours, but they were wonderful wonderful, and really incredible. And these are, I never took any more than like 10 or 12 people because it was just me running. And we experimented in all kinds of ways. And the fascinating thing is people would come having never laid eyes on one another before, talking about some of the most horrendous things that one has ever heard of with this shame just oozing out of them and the support of the other people brought tears to my eyes after every group. And was the shame over things that they had done or had been done to them? Both. It was It was unbelievable. I truly believe that there aren't any experiences as healing as that. Right. I agree with you. I agree. And it amazed me every time I'd come home and I'd say, the amount of support for people they had never seen. And it didn't take, I mean, we'd meet Friday night all day, Saturday, Saturday into the evening, all day Sunday, Sunday into the evening. And I don't know if those people met up with one another afterwards or not. I would tend to think not. But what they got 
They were seen. Yeah. They were validated. They yeah. were heard. Which, I, I mean, what, what percentage would you venture to guess people who are angry, that's at the root of it? Oh, the shame is, yeah. Yeah, that they're... And, and they not That they're seen, invisible, they're powerless. Not heard and not respected. Those are the three key things under all of that. And, um, wow, it was just very moving. So let's get back to the, to the uh, topic of aging. We talked about mindfulness. Yeah. Um, uh, we talked about... Um, spirituality. Spirituality. Uh, talk a little bit about the myths uh, about getting older. We began to touch on that a little bit about letting, right. letting things go, letting go of who you think you need to be, uh, not being so rigid, being flexible. Um, getting rid of the negative self-talk. And, you know, not being hung up on what others think you need to be or how you need to look. Um, and Finding something that you're passionate about. Finding something you're passionate about and keeping your mind and your body in shape. You know, they've been talking about that sitting is the new cancer, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so move, get up, move, go do something, join a gym, make friends when you go and join a gym, because as you get older, and there are some people that perhaps have moved away or passed away, you need more friends. That's a great place to make friends. Um Eat well, do mental exercises, learn and learn a language, learn to play an instrument, something that keeps the mind active and busy. I think all those things are important. As I said, we're living longer and we're healthier. Let's do something good with it. Uh, one of the things your your book talks about is this myth that uh, older people are less happy when it's actually just the opposite. Oh, just the opposite. They they don't care about certain things that they used to care about. They've paid their dues. You know, they don't want to just be babysitters for their grandkids. You know, they don't mind doing it every once in a while, but they've got a life, mm -hmm. and they want to have that life. And So they have some meaning and purpose yes, in it? Yes. Some passion? I had someone say to me the other day when I said, well, can you know, next week is going to be Thanksgiving, so we need to change our time. Can we meet at this time instead of that time? And it's she's an older woman. I think she's in her 60s. She says, well, you know, I ice skate twice a week. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, I could barely ice skate when I was 12 because <laughs> of my ankles. But I said, oh, well, I don't want to get in the way of your ice skating. But, I mean, she has got a commitment to ice skating. And I think it's terrific. Yeah. You know, so those are things people need to do, and that keeps them happy. I have been playing hockey since I was eight years old, yeah, and I feel the exact same way every time I lace my skates up. An excitement in me that I can't wait to get out there 
and right. join everybody. Right. What's going to happen? You know, what it's. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. feel great afterwards. It's a way to bond. Yes. You play with the same people. For the most part. Sometimes yeah. people come in and out. It's a way to love my body because mm-hmm. I can see what my body can do. I right. feel graceful. I feel right. uh, the masculine side of me. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I hope to be able to do it until until the day I the day I die. Well, listen. There's somebody in my book, right, who started doing marathons at ninety. <laughs> wow. And just wow. did another one at 97. Wow. Yeah, yes. we did a lot of research for some of those examples. Uh, may I ask how old you are? 77. Okay. What What are you experiencing at 77 that you wouldn't have imagined when you were 30? Well, I don't feel 77 mm-hmm. at all. It's kind of amazing to me. Um I would never thought at 30, you know, at 30, I looked at my, uh, my grandmother was still alive and I was, uh, she didn't die till I was like 35 and I You were the cause of her death. (laughs) No, no, God knows, 98 was the cause of her death. Um, But everybody looked so old at that time, you know, and though, you know, my family was busy making money. They were depression kids. They were making money and having their own businesses, my father included, until he died. Um, but uh, I feel very limber, very youthful, very energetic. And um, I love trying, I've always been someone, and it's still that way now. I like to push the envelope. You know, um, shitty childhood, I I like to think of it as a forced gym membership for the soul. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, once you decide that you're you're going to uh, heal and take your power back, and be your authentic self, you discover that you could not have done it if you hadn't been in oh, that horrible, my. painful place. Because you, who would have done it? Who would have lifted these weights? Nobody. If you didn't have to do it to live, mm-hmm. to survive. Mm-hmm. And anybody that's that's listening that feels trapped, that feels like, oh, you know, all of these things they're talking about, that applies to other people, but I, my lot in life is shit and you just don't understand. What do you say to that person? Energy follows thought. We have to remember that the present is where we make, can make a difference and the future is always filled with possibility. We create a tomorrow we love by what we intend believe and do today dr andrea brandt thank you so much your book is called mindful aging embracing your life after 50 to find fulfillment purpose and joy and uh andrea's last name is b-r-a-n-d-t i assume they can get it at uh amazon amazon right yeah 
Yes, um, absolutely. Well, I'd love to have you come back on and talk about anger uh, as well, because I think that's, to. A, that's a great topic. But, well, uh, this was a pleasure. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank You're you. very psychological. <laughs> Which makes it easy for me. Oh, thank you. That's uh, that's very flattering. Yeah, no, you are. Thanks. <laughs> what a sweet soul. Really, really like talking to her. And um, such an important topic. Something that we think about so often, but we never really kind of deconstruct and say, hey, how can how can I look at this in a way that, that isn't negative? Well, I guess it's not easy. <laughs> it's hard to find the positive side of one day I'm going to die. One day my body's going to start to break down. Anyway, uh, today's episode is sponsored by the Jordan Harpinger Show. Uh, Jordan was a guest on this show and really enjoyed having him. He was so forthcoming about workaholism and anxiety and perfectionism and low self-esteem and all the other things that he uh, he struggles with. And I've been a guest on uh, on his show as well and really, really enjoyed it. If you haven't heard the Jordan Harbinger show, uh, you should check it out because while it may have a slightly different approach uh, than, than this podcast, the goal is the same, which is personal growth. Plus, it has something that this show I don't think does, which is practical advice for professional growth, if, if that is something that you are looking for, which I think a lot of you guys probably are. So you can search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, uh, or you can go to the jo- to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe, and that's J-O-R-D-A-N-H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R.com slash uh, subscribe. We'll put the links to all of this and other stuff on our uh, website. An Apple Top 50 podcast and was among Apple's best of 2018. Now, the Jordan Harbinger Show studies field-tested psychological principles from special forces, Navy SEALs, world-class intelligence officers, then reverse engineers those same strategies and helps you apply them to your social and professional life. In fact, every episode has worksheets so you can make sure you're internalizing and applying what you learn from guests. Uh, So, check it out, guys. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts. Um, And we'll put the links to all of that on our website. The show is also sponsored by Veradesk. It's the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veradesk converts any desk into a standing desk, and it's designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veradesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing, increasing your productivity, focus, and collaboration. That way, you can get more done and focus on the things that matter to you. Veradesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required. They also cover shipping both ways if you don't love it. They'll pick it up. Veradesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veradesk. To learn more about Veradesk standing desk solutions, visit veradesk.com slash workelevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash work elevated. Maximize your productivity at veradesk.com slash work elevated. This is a psych ward experience 
survey filled out by a woman who calls herself happy slash sad. Why were you hospitalized? I was extremely suicidal, anxious, and in the deepest, darkest depression of my life. While in the hospital, I was diagnosed as bipolar with generalized anxiety disorder. Describe your experience, either as a patient or visitor, and did it help? It was intimidating, to be sure, at the beginning, as I took it all in. You fall quickly into the schedule and structure of it all. I was put on lithium, so each day started with a blood draw. We went down to the cafeteria at 7.30 a.m., followed by meds and groups until lunch. Meds again, groups, gym, quote, uh, dinner, and two more groups, meds, and lights out by 10.30. Lights out was a very funny term to use because while your lights were off in your room, the door was always open with the hall light shining in. You were also checked on every 15 minutes quietly by a nurse. The bathrooms had curtains instead of doors, and it was very common to be in the shower using the restroom, uh, in parentheses, pooping was interesting, and have the nurse call your name to do checks between a thin sheet of material. There was no such thing as modesty there, which I feel was actually what helped shed everything away and just be raw. Because of that rawness, lack of normal comforts like phones, shoes with laces, and the inability to hide behind makeup, etc., we bonded quickly with each other. I walked away with what I believe will be three lifelong friends that hold me accountable and understand like no other person could. We all felt very similar things, like being a burden being an extreme caretaker, and suffering in silence for too long. It was like a mirror being held up to me. If they were worth it, then I guess so was I. I have to say I loved most of the nurses and doctors. They are true heroes with tons of patience. Um, Patience as in, uh, you know, not patience as in uh, clients. Patience as in... uh, (laughs) The ability to uh, to wait. I think you get the point. My hospital was also amazing because I split up anxiety slash depression people in a different ward, but because it split up anxiety slash depression people in a different ward from the psychotic patients. This certainly isn't anything against patients with psychosis. It just helps keep a calmer environment and the anxiety to a minimum. Overall, I was there for a week. I'm so blessed and thankful for that experience. It was no day at the spa or relaxing, but you learned and knew you mattered, and that is more valuable than any spa could offer. It's been about seven weeks since I was discharged. I didn't come home all fixed, but I came out better than when I went in. It has not been easy since that discharge day. I've still had my bad lows, suicidal ideation, self-harm, etc. My meds have been modified several times, and that in and of itself is difficult. I'm crossing my fingers as I write this, but I have a good three to four days where I've felt like me again. Thank you for that. And I have to say, of the hundreds of psych ward experience surveys that I have read, that one is probably one of the most positive that, that I have read because, honestly, the majority of them are not not positive experiences. Um, and, and and I don't think it's because of the, the people shouldn't get professional help when they're in a state of... Uh, acute crisis, it's more that the system is failing people. And sometimes I think also people go in there and they're unwilling to really take help in the form that it comes in. So it's uh, it's very complicated. I can diagram it though, if you'd like. 
This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a trans man who calls himself Fifty Shades of Grey is a bad book. Don't read it. Uh, about his depression. Let's be sad together. <laughs> about his alcoholism and drug addiction. Life is hard. Drink. Life is good. Drink. Life is boring. Drink. Life is exciting. Drink. Life. Drink. About his love addiction. I told you I loved you after three days, and you told me I was too intense. I mean, I get it, but maybe let me down gently? Question mark. About his codependency, I hate you. I'm sorry, don't leave me. I love you too. Please stop yelling at me. Get the fuck away from me. No, come back. I'm sorry. You're sorry. Everything's fine now. Thank you for that. Jay describes his compulsive behaviors. Uh, OCD. If I look down while walking through my office building, then I have to put my feet in the correct spot and angle to match the pattern. Snapshot from his life. I still see the floor pattern, even if I'm looking at my phone where I'd normally hold it. If I don't want to step awkwardly, I have to hold my phone awkwardly high or put it away. That, that sounds taxing. Thank you for sharing that, Jay. Teresa, or no, I'm sorry, Tessa shares uh, a snapshot from her life and her issues are uh, panic disorders, Lyme disease, PTSD, and a couple of other things. And a snapshot from her life, holding a trash can between my legs and throwing up in a doctor's office while begging for benzodiazepines. That does not sound like fun. Clarissa shares about her anxiety, OCD, and self-harm in a snapshot from her life. I knock over a glass of milk while having dinner with my boyfriend and his brother. My boyfriend gently suggests I try not to swing my legs around so much. I have a history of knocking over glasses of liquid. His brother tells me this happens to everyone and not to worry about it. Despite them being very nice, I feel sick and humiliated, so as soon as they leave the room, I punch myself repeatedly until I've bruised my arms and legs. Thank you for sharing that. This is a psych ward experience uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself June. Uh, Why were you hospitalized? I've been hospitalized more times... uh, then I can can't for many reasons. I'm not sure what that. The majority of those instances can be put in two categories. One, being a risk to myself. Two, not having access to medication because I could not afford it. My doctor never sent the prescription in or or was out of town and unavailable to sign off on a refill. Bearing in mind that I was paying some really sketchy psychiatrists out of pocket because I didn't have insurance at all. Uh, describe your experience. The experience of being inpatient fills me with conflicted feelings. In 2014, I spent more days inpatient than I did out in the real world, and I felt extremely out of place wherever I was rele- whenever I was released. The hospital became the only place I felt comfortable being myself, showing my scars or talking to people about the fucked up things that were going on in my mind. The hospital was also a place for bonding and occasional humor. Even now, when things get really tough, I think about how comforting it would be to return to the hospital for a week-long vacation where I can refuse visitors and get told when to eat and when my bedtime is. 
Then, there's the weird nostalgia. When people chat about the good old days of college, all that comes to mind for me is being in the psych ward. I remember one time, the ambience of the ward was really glum. There was a patient in solitary that had all personal possessions confiscated, refused food for four days, and was on 24-hour suicide watch. This was pretty normal, so I didn't think twice about it, but as anyone who has frequented, frequented inpatient wards and been on 24-hour watch knows is that the quieter and easier of a patient you are, the less aware the, quote, shadow nurse is of doing their one job of watching you. So this guy was pretending to sleep, and it was visiting hours, so the nurses were really busy. All of a sudden, this naked man comes sprinting down the hall towards the ward exit doors, and just as the doors are about to close, he reached the handle. But the magnetic lock was too strong, and he hit the door face first. He knocked himself out completely. Everyone was confused because no one recognized this guy, and we all realized, oh, suicide watch dude had a whole escape plan this whole time. So there was a huge rise in morale because no one could stop talking about the naked cowboy who almost escaped. Cannot make this stuff up. Thank you for that. A guy who calls himself Little Green Man uh, describes his OCD. OCD makes me question things so much. I feel unsure about the basics of who I am. It's like everything I know about myself is a Jenga tower, and one thought could remove the piece that sends it all crashing down, and I'll have to spend another day rebuilding it from the bottom. Any comments to make the podcast better? He just did the typewriter picture of a dick and balls. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it. It's like you can come up with any kind of communication medium and somebody will immediately find out how to convey a dick and balls. How long after smoke signals were invented was somebody sending up uh, a big dick and balls? Uh, this is a psych ward experience filled out by uh, a young woman who uh, calls herself uh, Neil McCormick. Why were you hospitalized? I was taking lithium at the time. I was also purging, uh, making myself throw up a lot. My electrolytes were dangerously low, and my doctor told me to go to the ER, and it ended up in a five-day hospital stay. Uh, describe your experience. I was 17, almost 18 at the time. I had to tell my parents that I needed to go to the ER. They were very supportive and comforting. I feel so guilty because the next day they were going to go on vacation for their 25th anniversary. I was in the hospital bed when my father rescheduled their vacation plans. I told them to go, but they wouldn't leave me. I wanted them to leave me. I was given an IV and later oral supplements. I was admitted with a history of an eating disorder. Because of that, they didn't ask me about anything else. Out of the five days I was there, I saw a psychiatrist once for five minutes. Nothing changed after I was discharged. I kept purging. I kept self-harming. I kept drinking until I was sick. They never asked me about it. They never brought it up. They, tr the, they treated what I was initially there for, but they never asked why. <sighs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Nico, and she struggles with depression, anxiety, 
alcoholism, and being a sex crime victim. Uh, a snapshot from her life. My romantic life is held hostage by a spiteful clitoris who refuses to orgasm when anyone else is around. Post-divorce, I moved to a new city and fell in love with a wonderful man. He was my true partner, a caring, considerate man, smart, beautiful, person that I can trust. This time, I said to myself, this time, my clit won't refuse to participate when we have sex. My clit's going to love it. I'm going to come in front of him. When he touches me, my clit will be in ecstasy. I will feel immense pleasure and have a fantastic orgasm. Three years later, my clit's still playing dead, and now so is my relationship. Thanks, clit, for chasing away another good one. I wonder if, again, I'm not a professional, but I have experienced fear of intimacy and sexual dysfunction, shutting down, and I wonder if going maybe to see a sex therapist with your partner or without your partner or maybe attending a support group uh, around being the victim of a, of a sex crime um, would be worth investigating. I don't know, but I just hope that you you don't give up in in trying to find the feelings of intimacy, uh, that, that your sexual intimacy that you're craving. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by, actually, I forgot to write down who it was that filled it out. But they write a little background. I grew up in a hypocritically religious household that would swing from being super conservative to surprisingly loose. I believe my parents, especially my mom, checked off enough Christian boxes in order to suppress the guilt and would then use that to justify their, quote, unchristian behavior when it suited them. A little more background. When I was 16 or 17, I had started going to a Bible study that my lifelong friend's grandma hosted. I'm going to refer to my friend's grandma as God's unappointed messenger or gum going forward. Gum was your classic speaking in tongues. I see oil tripping down the walls. You're probably possessed psychotic variety when it came to her faith. She would regularly get in my face with the most intense eye contact grab my shoulders and start to shake and cry, telling me that she had a, quote, word, unquote, for me, and that I must repent right now because the Lord came to her with this urgent message. It always made me incredibly uncomfortable, and I would say anything to get her to leave me alone. It was wildly inappropriate, and I started to go out of my way to avoid her. To get to the point, this was all around the same time I had lost my virginity and became sexually active. My second sexual experience was actually with Gum's grandson. My mother was starting to become aware or at least suspicious of my sexual activities and called Gum without my knowledge or permission to come over to our house and have a, quote, session with me. By this time, I'd stopped going to Bible study and was completely turned off by the entire idea due to my experience with this woman. So you can imagine my surprise when Gum walked into my house and wanted to sit down with me. Gum sat with me for several hours while I sobbed and sobbed as she accused me of being tainted, a Jezebel, and an atheist. She made me say a prayer for each one of my, quote, sins and repent for having sex before marriage. 
She told me I would never be able to have a truly loving and intimate relationship with my husband if I didn't repent for being with the man whom I wasn't married to. She made me say the name of every man I'd slept with and say a prayer for each of them in order to, quote, sever the soul tie that had been formed from us having sex, WTF, question mark. I hope she choked when I said her grandson's name. She also accused me of being involved with the occult because I admitted to listening to rock music and doing several other things that she considered evil. She literally had a list of completely normal things that were supposed acts against God. One of the things on this list was yoga. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself not a failure. And she writes, uh, I comb through my Facebook memories daily to delete posts that I made when I was in my early 20s and on meth. One day, I came across a memory from over a decade ago that said, uh, I am a failure. I paused and looked at how ridiculous that statement was. I was only 15 when I posted that. I hadn't even tried to do anything yet. How could I have thought I was a failure? Through that dumb status update, I was able to connect an absurd statement with the negative thoughts that, in my depressive states, twisted and distorting my self-image and my... I twisted and distorted my self-image and my narrative. I could feel sincere empathy for my teenage self and my present self. Sometimes my past and present collide in negative ways, but in that moment... It was like I was giving my past self a big hug. That's so beautiful and such a great example of what we really need, which which is self-compassion. It's no, you know, I say it all the time, but nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person that they want to be. And it seems counterintuitive when we grow up with that negative voice in our head that tells us we need to be more of this and less of that and et cetera, et cetera. But there are so few... There are so many things where the answer is just acceptance, um, acceptance of reality and learning to differentiate between what we can control and what we can't control. And most of it comes down to just our reaction to reality. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling and you're feeling alone, you are not. You are so not alone. And help is out there if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and try something new. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.